Well, dear congregation, I would invite you now to please turn your prayerful attention to the words that I read to you earlier in your hearing there in the book of First Kings chapter 6. We arrive in this chapter after now having spent a good while going through since chapter 1. We're working our way through the book of First Kings after having studied First and Second Samuel. We are dealing now with the life and reign of King Solomon. But as we're reminded in 2 Samuel at the close there, these books are not essentially about kings, are they? But they are pointing us to the great king to come, the Lord Jesus. And here even in the temple, we're reminded, we have read of the building of the great temple. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ said in his day when he appeared in the temple of Herod, which was even far larger than this temple. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. And of course, he was speaking of his body. The temple speaks of Christ. We know from Hebrews chapter 10 and also chapter 9 that the things of the oracle, that is of the holy of holies and the law and the testimony, these things, these things of the temple and the things within the temple were shadows of things to come, pictures of the true, as the Apostle Paul says. All of these things, the sacrifices, the ordinances, the Ark of the Covenant, and everything that was in the Ark, all spoke of Christ. We have been learning that the tabernacle of old, and now even the temple, was a teaching aid, for it teaches us of Christ. The law, in terms of The ceremonial law teaches us of Christ. It is, as Paul says in Galatians, our tutor to bring us to Christ. We could also say that of the moral law. The moral law, we know we have all broken the moral law, haven't we? We've broken the Ten Commandments. And in that sense, we learn, we know that we need a righteousness because we have no righteousness before God. But it is the righteousness of Christ that is in the gospel, whereby sinners are saved. The Lord tells us that we are condemned, that we fall short of God's glory, and that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now, the temple also reflects something of the glory of God. We've seen it here in this chapter, that everything in the temple, even the floor, was covered in gold. As you notice in the verse 30, so is heaven. As we read in the book of the Revelation, there will be streets of gold. It speaks of God's glory. The temple of God speaks of God's glory and of a glorious God. Now, there are several things in this chapter to glean from. It may not appear that there are many spiritual things and lessons to learn from this chapter, but I trust that you'll see that there are A few. The first thing we note in this chapter is the verse 1. There is a significant date that is given to us. We note, and it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel will come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign of Israel, in the month of Ziph, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. So we have a date here. Uh, This 
time here, most historians mark as the time of 966 BC, which gives us a reference point here between God's deliverance from Egypt to this point where the temple begins to be constructed. 480 years. It's quite a long time, isn't it? Uh, The people sacrificed uh, and offerings were brought into the tabernacle, but now the temple is being built. Think of that period before they were delivered out of Egypt. And there is something we can say here. What were the people doing in Egypt? Well, they were in bondage, but it was God's Wisdom that he raised Israel in a land of bondage. And it's true, I suppose, spiritually speaking, God raises a spiritual seed in the land of this world, which is a land in which people are in bondage. They're in bondage to their sin. So Israel was a place of idolatry. And we know that many of the people left still even with the idols of Egypt, didn't they? And they were condemned for that. But nonetheless, the people were delivered by the blood of the Lamb and by that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. God led them out and parted the Red Seas. It was a mighty deliverance. And he delivered them to come to know him and to be a special nation that would be favored by God and to bring them finally under the kingship of David and then Solomon. And of course, Solomon, like David, is simply a type of Christ. All of these types fall short of the true, don't they? These are imperfect men. David was an imperfect man. David didn't overcome all of his enemies. He was a type of Christ in that, unlike the other judges, David overcame his enemies, but not exactly all of them. There were a few foes that still had to be dealt with that Solomon dealt with in his reign. And even when Solomon comes, his name is derived from the word shalom, which means peace. Solomon's reign, as we have begun to see, was a reign of peace, but not perfect peace. Because the people, although they were merry and every man was under his fig tree and vine, He was well provided for that even at the end of Solomon's reign, even after he died, when his son Rehoboam took up the kingship, the people were still somewhat embittered. Although they had property, although they had an abundance, they really didn't want to render any more, did they? They weren't quite happy with the tribute, the taxes that they had to pay Solomon, although they had great protection, they were want for nothing, and it shows that really Solomon couldn't truly give peace of heart, certainly not like our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is styled as the Prince of Peace. He not only makes peace for, with God for us and reconciles his people to God through the blood of his cross, but he also gives us the peace of God, which passes all understanding in the life. And if we have Christ, we really have forgiveness of sins. 
That's the peace that Christ gives and contentment in this life. He is the Lord, our shepherd, who will guide us through the paths of life. And at the end of this life, even at the end of the dark tunnel of the valley of the shadow of death, he will be there to meet us at the very last and will welcome us into heaven and into the presence of all the holy angels. And we will be perfected. We will be like him in that final day. So we think here of chapter 6, verse 1, deliverance and kingship. The people were delivered. The time now, as I said, 966, 480 years. And uh, that would help us also to date the time of the Exodus to 446 B.C., It's a very helpful datum mark for historians here and for us to date chronological facts in the Bible. But it points to the very fact of deliverance and kingship. How much more in Christ? Christ would eventually come and give us real deliverance. Solomon here builds the temple. It is a permanent structure. For 480 years, ever since they left, and we could say a little less than that, from the time that the, remember the tabernacle was constructed under Moses, and the Lord gave Moses every detail of the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle was smaller, and uh, it it was, um, if you like, portable. It was grand, it was glorious, but this is something far more grand. And it pictures, ultimately, heaven. It pictures glory. And there are many lessons, I trust, that we will see as we go through some of the details of this passage. Now, you think of it, that exodus from Egypt, the Lord was delivering. It it is a picture. Deliverance from Egypt is a picture of salvation. But in a sense, God was still, it is all part of our ultimate deliverance because out of Judah would come the Lord Jesus. It's not only a picture, the deliverance out of Egypt, but it is all part and parcel of our ultimate redemption in Jesus Christ because out of that tribe of Judah, the Savior would come, the Lamb, who would give his life as a ransom for many. Now, although it was many years until now a permanent place will be, there are many lessons that had to be learned along the way. You consider the journey uh, through the wilderness of sin. It is called the wilderness of sin, and there was much sin committed by the people along the way. The journey from Egypt to Canaan really even when they crossed the other side, ought to have only been about three weeks' journey. But because of the sin of the people, it was a whole lot longer, wasn't it? Forty years passed by, and every one of the generation of the men 20 years and up perished, except for Joshua and Caleb. It was a solemn lesson. Remember how the men rebelled at Kadesh Barnea. And they were forbade to go into the promised land. And then even when they got into the promised land, how they didn't overcome the enemies. Remember how God said that they should overcome 
the enemies. They didn't fully obey God. It was partial obedience. And many then began to worship the idols in the land. And there was trouble on every front. They continued in persistent and partial obedience to God. And that left them to fight the enemies under many judges over the next 299 years, almost 300 years. And then we know of the disobedience. I'm covering this period of here, the 480 years. We know of the disobedience of Eli the priest and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, those wicked sons, bringing the wrath of God to that place of Shiloh where the tabernacle was for 369 years. And uh, really it was Ichabod. The presence of the Lord had departed from Israel. And then there was the rise of ungodly King Saul, the people's choice. What a fool he proved to be. And then King David, who was a man after God's own heart, yet unable to build a temple Just as Solomon had said, if you notice back in the previous chapter, verse 3, 1 Kings 5, 3, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build an house unto the name of the Lord his God for the wars which were about him on every side until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side so that there is neither adversary nor evil current. So Solomon is able to build the temple. So it's been 480 years of turmoil because of sin, because of partial obedience and sin, and the battle against sin, not only from within, but from without. But now Shalom, Solomon has come, now there's peace, obviously picturing Jesus Christ, who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now, God's church is spiritual. We are told in the book of the Revelation that there is no temple in heaven. There will be no temple in heaven. For God will tabernacle with his people forever and forever. Now, remember, David after his, or just before his death, should we say, we saw, notice in First Chronicles 22, 5, It says there he prepared abundantly before his death. That is, he he began to uh, get men ready, as we will see from 1 Chronicles 28, 11, that he even instructed the priests what to do in the temple. And uh, he prepared many things before. He gave the pattern of these things to Solomon. If you just turn with me to... um, First Chronicles 28, and uh, I want to say this by way of introduction, what Solomon is doing here in chapter 6 of First Kings is Solomon is not being creative. He is not coming up with the designs himself. These are things that God has directed David, his father, by the Spirit of God, and David confers them to Solomon First Chronicles twenty-eight eleven. Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch and of the houses thereof, and of the treasuries thereof, and the upper chambers thereof, and of the inner parlors thereof, 
and of the place of the mercy seat and the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit. And you can read this entire passage. Everything concerning this temple is given to Solomon by David, by the Spirit of God. So Solomon here is not making it up as he goes along. And uh, that's very important to note. Verse 12 there, And the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord and all the chambers round about, and so on. Just as Moses was directed by the Lord, so was David. And uh, Solomon here is simply obeying his, what his father had received from the Lord. David even, you can read on, uh, you notice in verse 13 of that chapter of First Chronicles 28, also for the courses of the priests and the Levites and all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, for all the vessels of the service of the Lord, of the house of the Lord. The Lord revealed all these things to David at that particular time, just before his death. Every detail was given to David and has been passed on to Solomon now. Now, this reminds us of a very important factor in the word of God. This is what we call the regulative principle. We do not make things up as we go along. It's being sent forth again and again. When we view the temple here, when we consider it, we are seeing what pleases God, not what pleases man. And uh, it's all done. Because God is represented here in the temple. The temple is a picture of him, and it is very much like the tabernacle, but just on a grander scale. You will see uh, the place of the Holy Holies here. It's called the Oracle, and it's where the Ark of the Covenant is, the showbread, the candlesticks, the table of incense. You get to the next chapter, the chapter 7. It speaks of all these things, but just on a grander scale. Before, remember, concerning the tabernacle, it was a transportable tabernacle. That's why it was smaller. But here it is grander, And it's glorious because it is speaking of Christ. The greatness of the temple is not so much the things of the temple, but the things point to Christ. That's what we must see. Remember, when the Greeks went in the temple, they said, we would see Jesus. And that's what we we ought to see. We ought to see Christ in all of these things. We've seen it in our studies in the book of Exodus many years ago. But the temple here is more permanent. We know much later in 586 BC that this very temple will be looted and destroyed. But much later, just before the coming of the Lord, it took 46 and a half years under Herod, it was rebuilt and even bigger, grander scale than this. But again, that was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, Indeed, we want to think here of the things of Christ. There are many lessons to learn. We're told here when it started, 480 years, and how long it took. Verse 38, how long did it take? It says he was seven years in building. Now, of course, seven is a very significant number, isn't it? It means, in Scripture, complete. It means perfect. And in that sense, we can say that heaven will be perfect. 
in God's perfect timing. Remember what the Lord said, I go to prepare a place for you. Heaven has to be prepared for God. The new heavens and the new earth, of course, as well, where we shall tabernacle with God. Well, here we're given the dimensions, and they're in cubits. A cubit, by the way, roughly is 18 inches. So it is 90 foot long, 30 foot wide, 45 feet tall. And again, as I said, it follows the tabernacle, the pattern of the tabernacle. Why? Because the way to God is the same. It's always the same. And the way is through the blood of the Lamb, the sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb, the brazen altar and everything else is here. And uh, the work of the priesthood is the same, but it's just on a larger format. Now, seven years, it seems like a long time. But in God's timing, and it's done with excellency, there are various details that I want us to see. And it seems to have been done with all might. Remember our studies last week in chapter 5, we saw that 150,000 men were involved with the hewing and the transportation of these huge stones. They were colossal size stones. And Josephus Flavius tells us, uh, as he studies the previous historians, that the stones were wonderfully polished. But they were actually unseen. We're told that here. They were covered. Why? Well, because we know that man has a tendency to worship stones and to worship objects. They were covered with cedar wood and then overlaid with gold. And that speaks of something. Gold speaks of glory. Cedar speaks of humanity. But gold speaks of glory. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was made with shittim wood and then overladen with gold. And the Ark, of course, speaks of Christ, speaks of his humanity. The wood speaks of his humanity. But the gold speaks of his glory and his divinity. And so it is here. Seven years, a long time. But it teaches us that things done for God must be done with excellency and with all one's might. You can see how Solomon really put his heart into all of this. And even when the Lord comes in verse 11 and verse 12, he doesn't actually uh, say, well, uh, Solomon, this is uh, wonderful. I think it'll be nice. I'll come and dwell here. But there is a charge, as we'll see, to Solomon. There is a conditional covenant or a conditional promise that is made to him. He's not come to, and the Lord doesn't say, well, now that you've done all of this, I will surely continue to dwell with thee. But we're told, if thou keep all my commandments, verse 12, to walk in them, then I will perform my word to thee, which I spoke unto David thy father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. The Lord is not going to be in the tabernacle simply because Solomon made it look nice and it was good. It's a lesson to learn. But it's, if you obey my commandments, if you keep them. So that's the first lesson we learn. The, the Lord didn't come down and commend the building. Now the Lord was pleased. We will note much later how the glory of the Lord, how the Shekinah glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
And the priests had to vacate because of that glory of God that came down that day. Now, it was a glorious building. Seven years in making, it's done with excellency. We're told, we're given in verses 2 to 9, the sizes and the details and the structure of the temple, the dimensions of the porch. Notice verse 3. And uh, something very significant here that I wish to point out and remark upon, the verse 4, where it speaks of these specially designed windows of narrow lights. And for the house, he made windows of narrow lights. You think of it. Light is an important thing. Heaven, we're told. There will be no sun, no moon. Why? Because God will be the light of glory. And in this temple, one of the things that we are struck with immediately in this temple is this immense amount of light in the temple. And that's a picture of heaven. Christ will be the glory. Here this is natural light, but Christ is uncreated light. And that is going to be the great feature of heaven. No sun, no moon, these things will pass. Christ will be that light of glory. He will be the light and is our light. So we're struck with that in the verse 4 there. The windows of narrow lights. It's an interesting phrase. And then we're given the details of the chambers all around the wall of the temple. So although the main structure was not very large, 90 feet by 45 by 30 by 45 high, but the whole thing encompassing was very large. And uh, you notice in verse 3 and verse 4, 5 and 8 and 9 that it is referred to the house as a house, the house of God, the tabernacle. And uh, this is where God will dwell in a peculiar way with his people. And as we said, God will come. If you just notice there in Second Chronicles 7 verse 1, God did come and fill the glory of his house Fill the house with his glory. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now there are many things. We've only read chapter 6. Chapter 7 deals with further details that were made, things that were made for the tabernacle, the two pillars, pillars that, that were named and so on. Tremendous feat of work here. Now, something else. We mentioned that the stone was covered, and there's a reason for that. That men have a tendency, and this is what the Jews did often, they worshipped stones and wood. But also, that um, everything here was done to the glory of God's name. Everything was overladen with gold. They walked on gold. Look at verse 30. And the floor of the house he overlaid with gold, wherein, within, and without. Verse 21. So Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold, and he made partition by chains of gold before the oracle. So this is quite a place of splendor. It really pictures heaven, doesn't it? The streets of gold that we read about there. 
And uh, God is glorified in this place. Now, I want you to notice something very significant uh, significant this morning. And uh, we come now first, secondly, to reverence and quietness. We've considered deliverance in verses 1, this 480 years to the kingship and reign of Solomon, and now to the building of the temple, which pictures Christ and his kingdom and God abiding with his people. But now reverence and quietness, verse 7. And the house, when it was in building, was built of stone, made ready before it was brought thither, so that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. So this is very significant, isn't it? There was to be no noise made whatsoever at this construction of this grand temple. Think of it, everything was to be done quietly. No banging, no chiseling. Everything before had to be cut to precisely the right size, to the right shape. It had to be molded, shaped off-site. No work. Everything reverently, quietly brought into place. It was not to be sort of a noisy building site. Everything was to be done solemnly. As they were carrying these big stones, they fit in exactly perfectly. It's a great picture. It reminds us, first of all, that something special was being done for the Lord. Everything must be pre-thought. Everything must be pre-cut. Everything must be done worthily. Great preparation was needed. You think of all those workers, and they were thinking, they're moving great large stones. I don't know how heavy some of them are. They estimate some of them were over two, three tons each as they moved these great stones. And if you made a mistake, that stone had to go back, and it was no good. And uh, you couldn't modify it on site. So there was no second thought about things. It had to be just right. Everything had to be fit precisely in place as it was brought there. Huge stones, exact measurements. Everything was of critical importance. No room for error. And this teaches us, friends, first of all, the importance of us serving God. And everything we do needs to be pre-thought. God wants our very best, but it also points us to heaven. One day everything is going to be perfect, surely, in heaven. Christ has gone to prepare a place for his people. But this also speaks here of reverence. Think of it, quietness, reverence. And how we need to even be when we come into God's house. There's to be quiet. There's to be a stillness. Not to be a clanging, a bangering, and a, and a chatting, and all of that. And it's true whenever we come into God's house. Solomon, this is why he writes in Ecclesiastes 5.1, Keep thy foot when thou goest into the house of God, and to be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, 
and thou art upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. It's true reverence. It's teaching us reverence, holiness. And God requires that we do things right. And this is what was required of the men. Again, this is a teaching aid, isn't it? Not only in what it shall be, but in the whole way that it was constructed. Men were engaged in this. God is in heaven. And the work for Christ that we do should be our very best. Now remember this, that we are described by Peter in the New Testament as living stones. That's what we are described as. 1 Peter 2.4 To whom coming as unto a living stone, there speaking of Christ, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones, a built up and spiritual house. Peter is speaking by the Spirit here of the church. As the spiritual house of God, Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 speaks of the church as a building. And we are living stones. He says, as living stones, lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now this is important, isn't it? Remember these stones, they were not seen. They were hidden. The glory is to God, isn't it? Even in the church, whatever we do for God should be for his glory, not to be seen of men. We are as living stones. We, we lift up and we exalt God. And you think, what was seen in the temple? Gold. Gold represented really the glory of God. God is to be glorified. As you go to so many places, it, it's man is glorified. Man revels in his architecture. He revels in his design. But this temple, just like the streets paved of gold in heaven, whether that be literal or symbolic, is all to be to the glory of God, my friends. That is how our lives are to be. Whatsoever ye do, says the Apostle Paul, do to the glory of God. Of God. The temple here was full of gold. The walls, the ceilings, the floor... You walked on gold. And how glorious heaven will be. Revelation 21, 21, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. How that is, I don't know. No eye has seen. We haven't seen it yet, but it will be glorious, whatever it is. It'll be far better than our um, imagination might ever conceive. But ultimately we know here the Shekinah glory of, glory of God came down. Second Chronicles 7, 1 Chronicles 7.1 we read it and the glory of the Lord filled the house. God was pleased. And uh, I draw your attention once again I've already mentioned but I want to concentrate on this just for a few moments this morning. The conditional promise, verse 11. And the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which thou art in building, if thou wilt walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and keep all my commandments to walk in them, 
Then I will perform my word with thee, which I spoke unto David thy father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So the promise wasn't based on the quality of the work, although it was fine workmanship, and it was done to the glory of God. But it was here based upon whether Solomon will walk in the statutes of the Lord, will be a godly leader, and that Israel will likewise follow in that godly pattern. And we know sadly... Although the Lord says here, I will dwell among the children of Israel, we know that the people soon departed. We know from this point onward, sadly, things go downhill for Solomon. And they go downhill, sadly, for Israel. We learn that. We know this particularly in the life of Solomon. You notice at the close of this chapter, We're told at the end, in the verse 38, that it took him seven years to build it. And uh, the closing verse says, so he seven years was seven years in building it. And verse 1 of chapter 7 begins, but Solomon was building his own house 13 years. It's quite something, very telling, isn't it? 13 years to build his house took a long time. And we know from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, that Solomon spent a lot of his time and wealth on building gardens and great features at his house. Spent much time in myrrh, in drink, and sadly also woman. That was his pursuit. Trying to seek happiness in this life, with those things that truly cannot satisfy the soul. He began to stumble, and many in Israel began to stumble because of him. This is why Paul reminds us that the love of money is the root of all evil. We know that Solomon's heart went after other women, and as a result, he served other gods. You say, I don't believe that. Well, turn with me to 1 Kings 11. Verse 1, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites and Zidonians and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go in to them, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods, Solomon clave unto these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as with the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, and the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. This is a most sad and solemn reading, isn't it? Surely. And he heard the word of the Lord came directly to him, my friends, saying, if thou wilt walk in all of my statutes 
And there have been many that have sat under good preaching and good ministry and have heard the word of the Lord and have not taken heed. He engaged himself in inordinate opulence. Let me repeat it. Inordinate opulence. Extravagance. That is a sin. Comfortable life. A home, that's good. But you have to be very careful. People can begin to idolize property and wives. And then our hearts are led to worship even other gods, sadly. Those other gods promised things. We know Ashtaroth, fertility. We know these other gods, they promised things. Covetousness. Paul tells us in Colossians, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. This is why Solomon has to remind us in Ecclesiastes 1, the eye is not satisfied in seeing. The ear never filled in hearing. The ego never gets enough. We believe that Solomon, at the end of his life, it seems, turned back to the Lord. We believe that Ecclesiastes is his swan song. He he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. That indicates it seems to be at the end of his life. He says, that's not what I am anymore. I'm now the preacher. I'm now the one that's telling you I've learned the lesson. Don't idolize things. He he, he saw the lesson in the temple here. Cover the stones. Cover them with cedar. It's all to be for the glory of God. The gold is the glory, we're told in Matthew, is The glory of God, the gold of the temple. It was all for the glory of God, not for the glory of man. Those in Herod's day gloried in the glory of the temple. That this was something glorious of man, but it spoke rather of the glory of God. And that's what Solomon ought to have been focusing on. That's why he closes the book of Ecclesiastes with these words, Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good, whether it be evil. Every work of yours, why you did something, how you did it. Was it done to the glory of God? Was it done for his praise? Was it done for you? Our life is short here, and our hearts are weak. He says, fear God, that is, have the highest regard and esteem and love for God. Love him with a filial fear. Because this God is a consuming fire. Because this God is a gracious God. This God would send his son to live the life that none of us have ever lived. His son that would say to the scribe, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
This is why the world has got in a mess, because Adam and Eve wanted something really that cost them their death. And God warned them that the day that they eat of that fruit that they so desired and coveted, it would kill them. Sin kills, doesn't it? The covetous heart. The devil said, hath God said? Solomon, the lessons we learn from his life are vast and many. The greater than Solomon, the Lord Jesus said. And Solomon, by the way, heard the word of God. Keep my statutes, keep my commandments. It was conditional. But the Son of God, what did he say at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount? Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken unto him as a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Solomon heard the truth. He was wise, but he didn't apply it to his own life. I think that's the chief lesson we can learn from Solomon. And at the end of his life, he said, look, I've learned to see what a mess I've made. What tremendous responsibility was given to him. But in many ways, while he was wise, he was a fool in not applying it to himself. His heart, therefore, went after many gods. Sad, isn't it? My friend, are you building your life on Jesus Christ? That's what the Lord Jesus said. I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Christ is the rock. His word must be obeyed. And if you obey his word, your life will be safe. And you can be assured that he will say to you, as we thought with the children this morning, enter into the joy of thy Lord at his coming. Solomon was given many talents. You remember the parable of the talents? The one had five, the other had two. Solomon wasn't faithful in everything. He was faithful in the building of the temple. But then he spent so much time, 13 years, almost twice the amount of time building his own house. Sadly, he made a lot of shipwreck. We believe he was restored at the end. Heaven will reveal it. It seems to be that way. But what a sad case. Paul reminds us to charge those who would be rich in this world to take heed. For the love of money is great evil. We brought nothing into this world. It's sure we will leave with nothing. Therefore, with food and raiment, let us be content. The Lord Jesus must be obeyed. Luke 20, verse 17, the Lord Jesus said to the Jews of his day, as he beheld them, he said, What is then that which is written, the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, broken in heart. 
but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. You think of all those immense stones on that building site. And you think of the great stone, the Lord Jesus, who is the stone which the builders rejected. He says, if you fall on me, you'll be broken, but broken in a good way. You'll be brokenhearted, and you'll build your life on Jesus Christ. But if that stone falls on you, if Christ falls on you, you've lived for yourself. In this world, we thought with the children, you will be cast away into outer darkness. There's that one servant that said, Lord, I knew thee to be a hard taskmaster. He didn't really know the Lord. And the Lord said, well, if you really knew me to be that, if you really thought I was, you would have put what you had to good use. You see, the Lord is froward with those who are froward. But those who are sincere know him to be good. This same Lord, this same stone, became the lamb of this temple and laid down his life for many. I can imagine some workers, some builders working on that yard and there's a silence, they're not paying attention as they're moving some great stone of maybe two ton, not paying attention to what they were doing. All this being hand labor, by the way. One of those great big stones falling. One of those stones hewed out of the mountains falling upon them. And them trapped underneath the rubble, calling for help. But no one able to help them. Perishing. So will it be, as the Lord Jesus said, on whom whoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. My friends, God is to be served with reverence and godly fear. Paul says, for God is a consuming fire. But if he is our God, he's gracious. Fall on him. You fall on him, and he'll build you up. Fall on him. Tell him you're weak. You're helpless. You fall on him. The Christian falls on him every day. And says, Lord, help me. And he finds his help and strength in the rock of ages. Who is gone to prepare a place for him, for her, soon in glory. Amen.